The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. for several weeks at distinctive emphases found among churches that are commonly known as Reformed churches. I hope the emphasis has been clear that when we talk about these emphases, we are not raising them as barriers of fellowship. There are folks who do not agree with some of these emphases, and we have fellowship with them if they know Christ as Lord. But they are things that we see about the Scripture that may in some ways be distinctive of us and of this church. So I bring you today a word, and I'm going to deal with it in a rather unusual way. I'm reading two short pieces from Galatians 3, and I don't think I've ever exactly done this ever before, and that is dealing with this text. I'm going to come to this text at the end of the sermon rather than at the beginning and see it as a summation of some things I have tried to draw together for you as big themes in the Bible. Listen to Galatians 3 as Paul writes, and beginning at verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now, all that's in between is beneficial, but to keep it shorter, I'm reading the last few verses of that chapter. Verse 27, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. This is God's Word. To speak of the subject of God's covenant in the Bible is to speak about a crucial part of seeing the big picture of Scripture and its salvation. The word covenant appears very frequently in the Bible. In fact, so frequently that if you would see how it is being used, it tends to form almost a kind of spine holding together Old Testament and New Testament salvation. And yet I would admit that in my ministry, I probably have not put as much emphasis on this concept, even though it's there and very much something I believe in, I may not have examined it explicitly for you as often as I might have or as often as some others do. Part of the reason for that is that I see the covenant as something that is rather implicit, and it's hard to get it out and put it under the microscope. 
Let me make this comparison I think might help you. If you were looking into buying a home, you would be concerned, of course, about the quality of the home. You're concerned about various features, how many bedrooms and baths you want, whether it has a family room or a fireplace or a large backyard or what style the home is. Those things are of concern to you. But I dare say, interestingly enough, that unless you happen to work in the construction industry, you probably don't go into that home with your realtor and start right away with a level and a framing square in your hand and say, well, were these floor joists laid right? Are they the right dimension of lumber? Is the construction of the, the base of the floor what it should be? Is it nice and, and level and plumb and the the walls, are they, are they straight and plumb? And the rafters, are they well constructed to take a good load of snow on the roof? Or are they perhaps undersized lumber, less than they should be? In other words, most of you absolutely, and I myself as well, take the framing of the house completely for granted. And I don't think very many realtors end up pointing out the fine points of framing to people when they look at a house. And yet, it's utterly important. If it was to be done wrong, if it's out of alignment, if, if joists are warped and twisted or something, you've got a defective house. No matter how attractive it is, no matter how much it might suit you in appearance and, and general function, you ought not to take that house. The framing is utterly important, and yet it can be neglected. It can be just overlooked. That's somewhat like the issue of the covenant of God in the Bible. You can practically never talk about it. Maybe some of you have never heard anyone talk about it. And yet, if it were not there, you would not have the, the grand picture of what God is doing, the large picture of what is going on in the Scriptures. We believe the covenant is that kind of a doctrine that unites the Scripture. And it does so in churches that are called Reformed. We talk about what is often named covenant theology because we see this as a spine or a structure running through the household of God. The hymn we just sang was, it was new to you, many of you, I think. It's a hymn that spoke really about the theme of the covenant, about Jesus building a house, a structure for himself. You may know that in our denomination, the, the name covenant often comes up as a covenant, as the name of churches, individual churches. We sponsor in our denomination both a college in Lookout Mountain, Georgia, and a seminary in St. Louis, both of which bear the name covenant. That would seem to tell you that this is an important idea to us, something that we value. We see that the triune God had a grand goal in view when he was determining to save those whom he would out of mankind. Now, you can read Scripture and not see this, not think about it, but once you do think about it and once it's pointed out to you, you start to see it all over the place. God making his covenant with Old Testament Israel and then continuing that covenant right on into the New Testament to the broader base of his church that includes not only Israelites who would believe in Christ, but Gentiles as well. Salvation seems to be unified around this concept of the covenant. It's not just a lot of chaotic, unplanned, unconnected 
events through the pages of the Bible. And the Old Testament is not a separate book, completely different or completely with a big chasm somehow between it and the New Testament on the basis of the covenant. I grew up, most of you know, I did not grow up as a Presbyterian. I grew up in a very fine church. I'm thankful to God for it. It was a what you would probably call a fundamentalist church under good preaching. Christ and his cross were featured, and my family, my parents included, came to know the Lord and call him Savior in that church. I'm very grateful for that church. But it was not a church that taught the doctrine of the covenant. And I must say, as a fairly serious young man, looking at the Bible, trying to know it, thinking maybe I had a future in ministry, I I came away from that church by college years not understanding very well any kind of unity between Old Testament and New. And it seemed to me, unless I had heard it completely wrong from my church, that God more or less had a plan A in the Old Testament that he was operating on, and then plan A was kind of like a train that went off the tracks. And so he brought us in the New Testament plan B that that looked beyond Israel to all the nations and, and brought something a little different. Well, I realize today, and I rejoice to realize, that my rather disjointed concept that I drew from early ministry was not an accurate concept. One of the problems with talking about the covenant, and maybe why it doesn't get talked about more, we do talk about it more in teaching, it seems to me. We have taught classes about it here, but maybe it doesn't come out as often from the pulpit. It's because it can easily become a rather technical subject. I have at least a half a dozen books on it in my library, many of, most of which I consulted in some way this week, and I came away from them with a similar reaction to each of them, that, that they were mostly theologians talking to other theologians, not really a book that I would give to the average man in the street and say, here, here's an easy, condensed, down-to-earth expression of what the covenant of God is all about. I talk to Pastor Light and I often end up in one another's offices on Friday afternoon if we have a sort of mutual time and we'll just sort of sit and reflect about the week and and what's coming. And and I came in and said, John, I, I, I don't have it. I don't have the sermon that will present God's covenant in one easy lesson. I don't think it exists. I don't think it's possible. It can be a difficult subject, but it should also be a simple subject in which the covenant is expressing an architectural framework uniting salvation in Old Testament and New. And as I told you this morning, I'm doing something rather unusual in that I will end up in the text I read for you rather than begin with it. First of all, let's ask a basic question. What is a biblical covenant? Well, the word has to do with promises promises that God makes. Now, we all live in a world where promises are broken very often by human beings, even those closest to us, those most dear who ought to be serious about any promise they would make, whether it's a marriage vow or whatever, promises can be broken. And so some people become so jaded that they think any promise that's made is bound to be broken. Well, God doesn't break promises. And the covenant shows us a God who's a promise maker, a promise keeper, a promise that also is more like a contract 
that God pledges himself to to say, I am God and I will do this for you. You need to do this. I was talking before about buying a house and all of you, or at least many of you, probably had that experience and you know how you go out and they're asking X dollars and so you say, this is the house I think, let's make an offer and your offer is X minus, of course, quite a bit because you want to get a lower price and you do a little dance back and forth with a realtor in between and hopefully come up with a negotiated price. So maybe you think that that a covenant, a contract from God is like that. God comes forth and says, this is my price. And you say, well, God, I'll pay this. No, not at all. There's no negotiation on our part in a covenant. God expresses himself and says, I am God, and here's what I will do at, at cost to myself And this is all I ask of you, just do this. And it's non-negotiable. The Lord usually identifies himself in the beginning of a covenant. You hear a statement like we hear in Exodus 20 at the beginning of the Ten Commandments. You could say the Ten Commandments are a covenantal act of God where he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. That's his beginning introduction to the Ten Commandments. Know who's speaking, in other words. Know who's requiring these things of you, that is telling you, don't worship other gods, don't lie, don't steal, don't covet. It's the Lord your God who's speaking, the same powerful God who brought you out of a land where you were slaves and did that by miracles and wonders. So in other words, you ought to pay attention. I'm a God who knows how to deliver promises. Now, when we talk about covenants, there's actually three big categories that the Bible uses, and this is where my undertaking today, I realize after the first sermon, is really too large, but I'm still going to try it. There are three main categories of covenant that you ought to know something about, and I can only glance off each of them. The first one, interestingly, we used the Westminster Confession this morning for our statement of faith about covenants. That was probably new text for some of you to see if you've never studied that confession. And it spoke about mainly two covenants, the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. There's actually another one. And it's, it's an interesting discussion as to why it's not mentioned in the Westminster Confession. I won't even go there. But there's one we put first, and it's called the covenant of redemption. This is a most interesting one. Those, that phrase is never used in the Bible, but this is something we assume or take for granted based on what the Bible reveals, that there was a contract agreement forged among the persons of the Trinity in timeless eternity, God the Father, Son, and Spirit, fellowshipping together before there was this world or anyone in it to sin or rebel against him, decided, made the decision to save. This is an amazing thought that takes us into deep thinking about who God is and what the Trinity is. That God would understand that making people free to either obey or disobey, they were going to disobey and they'd have to be saved. And he, God, would agree among himself, Father, Son, and Spirit, how that salvation would happen, that the Son would have to come forth and offer himself and go to death and so on. Ephesians 1.4 is a hint at this. It says, God the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. 
John 6.39 is another hint at it. As Jesus said there, it is the will of him who sent me that I would lose none of those he has given to me. There's this contractual idea of people being saved and God doing what is necessary to save them. I'm simply going to say that and go on because that could occupy a lot of time. The other one that is always spoken about is the covenant of works. Now, this is seen in one place in the Bible, Genesis 2. This is just a word of description of what went on in the Garden of Eden. The idea that God presented to our first ancestor, Adam, the blessing, I am God who made you, I'm paraphrasing, I've made this wonderful garden, this wonderful earth for you to enjoy and manage and move about. You can be blessed in what I've given you. And just so that you remember that I am God and you are not, here's one condition to my blessed covenant that I'm giving you. Don't do this. And on the day you disobey it, you will surely die. Well, I don't have to tell you the outcome, I don't think. Could you possibly not know the outcome? That, of course, Adam could not keep the covenant. The covenant was broken. He could not perform the one simple act of obedience. And so we all, in history, become what the theologian would call covenant breakers. We cannot keep the contract that God molded for us to enjoy perfect blessing by works. We can't do the work. Now, there's one person who can and who did and that's Jesus Christ. So in a real fact, we would look at it and say Christ came to keep that covenant of works that we could not. Matthew 3.15 says Jesus was the one who fulfilled all righteousness. Philippians 2.8 claims he was obedient unto death. The emphasis on the active obedience of Christ, doing what man could not do, keeping that covenant of works. Well, those are the first two that we talk about, but now the third one, and and it really is my second main point, as I talk about the covenant of grace, for this is the big one, the covenant of grace, which begins in the Garden of Eden and extends through all of creation and time to this present day. It is what some people might call the plan of salvation. Those who don't use covenant language might say the plan of salvation. They mean the same thing, the covenant of grace, in which God now has done and is doing in Jesus Christ what we cannot do, reaching out. We spoke last week about salvation that's all of grace. It's initiated by Him. We're helpless in our sin. God makes the covenant of grace with men and women after the fall and says, I will provide in my son what you cannot do. One thing I require, embrace him in faith. This begins, we think, in Genesis 3.15. We've talked about that wonderful text before where in the midst of pronouncing a curse on Satan after the fall, the Lord God said, Satan, I'm going to bring the offspring of the woman, very strange expression, which theologians universally believe applies to Christ, the offspring of the woman who's going to crush your head as you strike or wound his heel. First prediction of Christ in the Scripture. In the midst of the dismay and the disaster and the wreckage of human sin, 
God says, I'm going to do what will be needed to rescue you. Then that covenant pops up and it emerges again and again and again. You know, I don't want to be, I don't want to use, uh, this is a spur of the moment idea, but it might seem disrespectful, but the covenant reappears so many times. If you've ever seen the nature films about prairie dog towns out in the, out in the Great Plains, you know, and the, and the prairie, uh, old Disney films used to have the prairie dogs, boom, 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 you know, popping up all over the place. That's what the covenant does throughout the Old Testament. It's constantly popping up, reappearing, being reaffirmed. If you were to look up this one phrase and do a study of it, here's the phrase. I will be your God and you will be my people. I don't even have a clue how many times that phrase is said throughout the Old Testament. I think it's probably hundreds. Again and again and again and again, God is saying, I reaffirm my covenant. I'm going to be the God. I'm going to be the one who delivers salvation. He said it so clearly to Abraham. And we look particularly at Genesis 15 and 17, where he says, I'm making a covenant with you to be the father of many nations, not just one nation, many. And through that nation Israel, all other nations are going to be blessed. And then comes repeated, 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 as I've said, reaffirmations of the covenant to Moses, to Jacob, to David, on down through the pages. I will be your God. You will be my people. I am determined to have a people. No matter how grim things look, no matter how hard you rebel and run from me, I am going to have my people. Now the difficulty is that Israel, as a particular nation, the model nation of the covenant, began to assume that because they'd been singled out that all you had to do was belong to Israel and you were in. And the blessing of the covenant was on you because you were an Israelite. And certainly if you read the Bible at all, you know how wrong an assumption that is. Hebrews chapter 3 looks back on earthly Israelites who started out on the journey from Egypt with Moses, millions of them, several millions And the language is so graphic and blunt in Hebrews 3 when it says that so many, if not the majority, of those earthly Israelites had, quote, unbelieving hearts, and thus their bodies fell in the desert, and they did not enter into God's rest. Saying as graphically and bluntly as could be said, being an Israelite is not it. You have to be a true Israelite from the heart who looks to God in faith and trusts the Redeemer, the Messiah that he promises to bring. And of course, for earthly Israel, that meant believing something that was still future. Hearing their prophets saying, I will bring the messenger of the covenant. Their prophets actually said that. But many did not believe it. You go all the way to the book of Jeremiah, which is a considerable distance historically through the Old Testament when Israel as a nation, Israel and Judah, were more or less in ruins because of their disobedience. They were captive to other nations. And God spoke through Jeremiah, a great statement in Jeremiah 31, where he was reaffirming the covenant at the very time when the nation was at its lowest ebb of ruin. And the Lord said, this is the covenant I will make after these days. I will put my law within my people. I'll write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. There's that phrase again keeps coming up. 
And this is called in Jeremiah 31, the new covenant. Well, it's new in that God is going to renew it. But it's really the same thing that was being announced all the time. Look in faith to what I will do, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. When Jesus was born, Luke 172 says, his birth was seen as the fulfillment of the covenant of grace. Matthew 26, 28 has Jesus himself at the Last Supper saying the familiar words, this, what I do here at this Passover Supper, this is the new covenant in my blood. The covenant of God is being renewed in me and in what is about to happen as I go to the cross for the forgiveness of sins. In Hebrews 12, 24, Jesus is called the mediator of the covenant, the one who puts the covenant into effect, bridging that chasm. Salvation in the Old Testament, salvation in the New Testament, God's plan, God's structure, still in operation, one structure. Now, I've put together an awful lot sweeping things before you here, and some of you may be a little dizzy by it, and you say, boy, I've never even heard of this covenant business. Well, I just want to bring you to the text now that I read at the beginning. Paul wrote in Galatians 3.7, it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Who? If you can trace your tribe to Benjamin or, or Judah or one of these, you know, sons, grandsons, whatever, of Abraham, is that how you're included in Abraham? No. It is those of faith who are the children of Abraham. The Scripture, it says, foreseeing that God would justify Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel. If I ask some of you when was the gospel preached, you'd say, oh, Jesus, the life and ministry of Jesus. Well, wait a minute. This is saying God preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying in him would all nations be blessed. In that heritage of faith, looking to God for the one who could do what we cannot do ourselves. So this final point says that the Old Testament and the New Testament contain one unified structure of a household of God, all saved by looking to Christ. You see that? It's a wonderful thing when you grasp the unity of it. The final words of Galatians 3.28 and 29 are triumphant. It says there there is neither Jew nor Greek. That distinction doesn't matter anymore. There's not a slave or a free man or a male or female when we're talking about belonging to God in Christ. All are one in Christ. And if you are Christ's, you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to, most translations have promise as the last word of chapter 3. Promise means the same thing exactly as covenant. Heirs according to the covenant. God's master plan for the ages is at work. Now, the sad thing, and and where this causes us to differ, is there are folks today that want to emphasize the the differentiation, and I don't have time to go into this, nor to certainly to attack it. It's not my desire, and yet I think many of you know that there are folks that want to say, well, God was doing his plan for Israel, and then he came to, and they will even call it a parenthesis, and said, okay, Now we're going to work on the church and all the nations for a while, but then we're going to go back to Israel again. 
And we're going to see in the Bible that the day is going to come when a temple is rebuilt in Jerusalem and sacrifices are being offered again. And what? What? What sense would that make? When God in his word says the one great sacrifice has been offered once for all, Jesus Christ, the mediator, the redeemer of the covenant, has come. The climax of God's salvation has come. And yes, today it is true that Romans 11 certainly alludes to the fact that that in the last days before Christ's coming, there may be great numbers of those from Israel who would come to Christ in unprecedented fashion. We think that's certainly a, a right way to understand Romans 11. But God's work among the Jewish nation and God's work in the Gentile people today is one work. It has one root. It has one Savior. There's one mediator of his covenant, Old Testament and New. Galatians 6 verse 16 even takes the New Testament church and believing Israelites and wraps them together under one title. They are the Israel of God. You are included in the Israel of God if you know Christ, the mediator of the covenant. Well, this is a complex subject, and I have to stop. But I want you to see how the Old Testament saint had to direct his eyes forward in faith to look for Christ who hadn't come yet. The New Testament saint looks back, and we look at historical accomplishments, the cross, the resurrection. They happened. Historic witnesses can tell us that they happened and verify that they happened. Christ is the messenger of the covenant for the believing Jew and for the believing Gentile. We all are children of Abraham. And this covenant concept is to us exactly like those wooden bones of the house you live in that you never even think about. But they hold up the house so that we can come together as believers from all ages and take the words of Ephesians 4.4 on our lips. As covenant people of God, we can declare there is one body and we are in one spirit called to one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God who's the Father of all who truly believe in Him. Praise be to the mediator of the covenant, Jesus Christ. Father, sometimes you cause us to look at things we don't think about very often. I thank you for the faithful promises that you reiterated again and again and again, saying that you will have your people throughout history, and you will do, and you did through Christ what had to be done. You applied the Holy Spirit. So those who would be a part of your household, your family of faith, would have one work done upon them, awakening them, substituting the righteous deeds of Jesus in place of the dead works that could not keep a simple prohibition in the Garden of Eden. And you, even now, from us, are drawing together your people. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for what a joy, what a wondrous thing it will be one day when we're gathered before you. People of all nations, men and women, Israelite and Gentile, 
there will be no distinction made between us at all as we praise our one great Savior. In his name, amen.